What I'm about to tell you has only happened to me one time. I ran across a book with a title that made me curious, so I bought it and I read it. When I finished it, I put the book down, went to my computer, found the author, and sent him an email asking him if he would please be a guest on my podcast. His name is Joe Cohane, and after reading the book, I told him that I felt as if I'd been bitten by a radioactive spider and suddenly had a superpower. Luckily, he agreed to be my guest, and he's with us today. The book is called The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World. It's one of the most important books I've read in a very long time. Here's Joe. Yeah, I, I grew up uh, in Quincy, Massachusetts, right? It was just, just on the southern border of Boston. I was raised in a family of funeral directors. And so my grandfather was a funeral director, my father's a funeral director, and all my siblings are working the funeral home. And I was basically raised by people who talked to people all the time. So my childhood home was just full of people all the time. Our holidays were enormous. My parents were never above just bringing strangers home for holidays, people they had met at Dunkin' Donuts. Like my father brought two bagpipers over one time. But they were always meeting people. They're, they're really game for meeting people. They're super open um, to talking to people. They're curious. And I just grew up watching that, like watching them everywhere we went. They would talk to people. And unlike the experience of a lot of teenagers who are horrified by that sort of thing, like it just seemed normal to me. Uh, I think partly because I just grew up among people who just never shut up, right? So Bostonians are, are talkers for sure. And so I was, you know, I always liked watching it. I got to see them live their lives like that. I got to see them make friends. And to this day, they're in their 80s now, and they still make friends on vacation. They still bring people home. I mean, that's like, it's indistinguishable from being alive, like meeting people for them, right? Um, so that was normal to me. I got into journalism after I got out of college. And so that also is just good training and talking to strangers. It's good training and like suspending any prejudices you have, any expectations you have about what someone might think of something like you just have to be pretty open and curious and quick on your feet. If you're going to interview someone well and get something, you know, unexpected out of them, you always have to be open to the unexpected. Um, so I did that, you know, I did that for years. I ran a couple of publications. I worked as a city columnist. I did all kinds of stuff. But what I realized a few years ago, and this would have dated back to 2000, 2018 or so, is that I was withdrawing from the public in a way that had never been the case before. So I suddenly found myself at a bar and I would be looking at my phone, you know, like, which is a shameful thing to do in a bar. Bar is like a holy place for my people. Um, and just like hunched over like all these other losers, like looking at my reading Twitter at a bar, right? So I started doing that. I started finding myself doing things like going to the self-checkout lane and the, when I went to CVS. Like I just started like steering away from in-person human contact. And I was sort of wondering, you know, at a certain point I was like, oh, actually, I'll tell you what it was. I did a screenwriting fellowship. I won a screenwriting fellowship um, that had me in Nantucket for two weeks as part of this. Um, pretty amazing. It's part of the Nantucket Film Festival, but cool experience. But I was hanging out with the other writers and it was like four o'clock in the morning because we were just out at parties every night at this film festival and i was like you know journalism in many ways was a bad choice for a career because it's just collapsing like it never stops collapsing and even at its best it never really paid anyways um i was like but the, the best thing about it is that it just gives you this ability to talk to people so i was like watch when we get this cab this cab driver i'll talk to the cab driver and the cab driver had this incredible story. So we're like driving back across Nantucket at four o'clock in the morning and the cab driver just tells me her life story and it's amazing. And that just reminded me of like, I used to do this all the time and I don't seem to do it that much anymore. I feel like I'm withdrawing from the public. 
And so I gave it some thought. I was kind of wondering what happened. And for me, the two things that I believe led to that was, number one, I just had a kid. So my wife and I had a daughter. And that sucks up all your energy and all your free time, right? So I wasn't hanging out like I used to. And when I did, I was tired. And talking to people, like being public in that way, does require a lot of attention and a lot of energy. You know, you, you really do have to be sharp when you're doing it. Um, and the other thing was just the phone. So, you know, if you're of a certain class, of a certain privileged class, you can basically go the rest of your life without ever talking to another stranger because you can do everything on the phone. So efficiency was winning out in that way. And then kind of exhaustion was winning out the other way. And all of a sudden I was just out of it. I was out of the game. Um, and I'm a person who's had like life-changing experiences and opportunities as the result of just talking to people. So, you know, I started talking to my book agent um, about this idea of developing it. And I started making phone calls and I found there was a huge amount of research um, over the last 15 years into this that no one had ever really put together before. So, you know, psychologists had started looking into it and there was some good research there, but also sociologists, theologians, like everyone in every discipline had dealt with the problem, what they call the problem of strangers, right? Which is sort of like how we interact with strangers, how we can be xenophilic, how we can be xenophobic, the complications of living among strangers, the rise of cities, like all these things. You can look at every discipline from religion to urban planning to, you know, history, of course, and gain insights into like what the problems are, what problems we have talking to strangers and what the potential hazards are and what the potential upsides are. Um, and then I just went down a million rabbit holes and it ended up being a really fun experience because and I'm sure you've experienced this yourself, um, academia is incredibly siloed in a way that though I went to college was shocking to me as a journalist. It was shocking to me that research in a certain discipline would get to a certain point and then they'd be like, well, that's as far as this is going to go, and, but not call someone in another discipline and be like, let me throw this at you. Like, what do you think? Because this is the whole incentive structure of academia is like you get a tiny patch of land and you defend it to the utmost. Um, and so very few of them are multidisciplinary. Very few of them are like, let's call a philosopher. Let's call a rabbi. You know, like, let's see what they have to say about this and see how it fits together. So I just went through all that stuff. I mean, I, I must have read a thousand research papers, you know, hundreds of books, talked to dozens and dozens of people and just had so much fun doing it because you would get to as far as a certain field of research has gone. And then you would call a sociologist or you'd call an anthropologist or you'd call an archaeologist. And they, you know... All these people were wonderful. And if they didn't have an answer, they would be like, you should call this woman. Like this woman might have something interesting for you. And she'd be like, that's interesting, like that you put those together. So the whole thing was assembled into like a coherent um, piece that addresses that. And, and that led you to putting out this book, The Power of Strangers. Um, what is it? Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World. Tell me about the book. Yeah, um, it was like two tracks. So one, I just wanted to understand what was going on. I wanted to understand humanity's history with strangers. And, and at the same time, I wanted, I wanted to get better at this. So it involved a lot of talking to academics and researchers to go as deep as we could go in the sort of anthropological record for evidence as to how we dealt with strangers. Because, you know, we're very pessimistic about our own nature as a species, I find. Um, but when you really study that, when you even go as deep as primatology and study apes, if you go deep into the, you know, the formation of traditional societies, you can see that xenophobia is certainly there, right? Like that is there. If people are facing scarcity, if people feel like they're under threat, they can be phenomenally violent. We know that we still see it every day. But what is less commented on is how like the, the human genius for socialization. 
um, the human genius for connecting with people we don't know under under the right circumstances, right? Because if we're, again, if we feel like we're under threat, we're going to be very bad at connecting with other people. But the entire rise of civilization, of cities, of nations, um, is the result of this like unique genius that humans have for connecting and cooperating and communicating with strangers. So I found it actually really reassuring that we had that capacity, right? That we have the power to do that. We don't always do it for sure. And, and sometimes we neglect it for years and, and all hell breaks loose. But a lot of researchers I talked to were just like, if we are inherently warlike, if that was our dominant mode, we never would have gotten anywhere because if you're fighting all the time, you don't travel, you don't spread, you don't procreate the same numbers, you lose a lot of people, um, all that stuff, like all the things that allowed humans to spread across the world for, for good or ill at this point um, was the result not of warlike tendencies necessarily, but of social tendencies. And again, I'm not like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying we're inherently good. I'm just saying we should recognize that part of our nature, right? We do have kind of a dual nature. Um, we focus on the bad part. We should focus on the good part, too. We should give ourselves a little credit. So, you know, getting into the rise of cities, getting into the sort of rise of human cultures, that was really interesting. It was, it was fascinating stuff. It's, it can be pretty reassuring stuff, too, when you look at it. And that was balanced by me just going out into the world and just talking to as many people as I can, but also hanging around with people who advocate um, for talking to strangers more. So organizations that hold events that put people at a table together to have intense discussions, like individual advocates who go out and try to get people to do this, people who get, you know, members of warring groups to sit together. You know, I spent a lot of time with a group called Braver Angels that literally exists to, to teach Amer uh, Democrats or Republicans how to like sit at a table and not kill each other. So you can see all that stuff. I just wanted to understand, you know, this is what it comes down to. Like it's a, it's a seemingly simple interaction talking to someone we don't know, but it's incredibly complicated and the history of it is so rich that when you go through all this stuff, you come away with like a, a much deeper understanding of what we are as a species. And hopefully there are some tools that you can use to try this out as well. Um, and I haven't got, I get a lot of feedback and I get a lot of letters. Um, I haven't had anyone give me, um, tell me about bad experiences, you know, like sometimes it can be a little weird because people can be a little weird. And certainly I'm a six foot tall, you know, white guy in America. So I do have an advantage here. Um, women have to deal with a lot of crap that I don't have to deal with. But interestingly, you know, as I found all these people who advocate for people to do this more, reach out to other people, to listen to strangers, talk to strangers, the majority of them were women and they were um, self-identified uh, introverts, which I thought was very interesting as well. So, yeah, just went and, and talked to everybody and tried to get good at this and tried to, you know, more of the point, understand this part of our nature and this part of our culture and, the, you know, the effect it has on society. I think it's funny when I talk to people, It's and I'm sure you get the same experience, it's quite often that one way or the other, as you're swirling around sort of the approach to a conclusion, you get to a discussion about the good old days. And, you know, I'm, I'm always quick to say they were pretty good as long as you weren't anything other than white or female. Right, yeah. And it's also, I always, like, I, I was working on a book proposal about nostalgia, but I ended up dropping it. Um, but I read a lot of research on that. And it's, you know, when people talk about how the world was better when they were young, I think what they're talking about is being young. You know, so even absent the social com complications and political complications and stuff like that, it's just like, oh, the world was so much unworried when I was like, you know, 22 years old. It's just like, no, you were unworried when you were 22 years old. There's a whole literature of like intensely neurotic suburban people in American literature, you know, like there's a lot of unhappiness and it's, you know, it certainly affects 
you know, minority groups, but in women, but also like everybody suffers when they hit middle age. It's just, you get there and you think the world has changed, but in fact, you have changed. Like that's the lie of nostalgia. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. It's fascinating. So um, a couple of stories stand out in my mind. And as I was going through your book, um, the first one just fascinates me. And that is, first of all, let's, let's back up and note that as part of your research for this project, you sought out a bunch of workshops and and exercises and, and programs that would teach you how to engage with people, which just just fascinated the hell out of me. And in one of those that you describe, um, the the assignment was to essentially stand on a street corner with another person, so it wouldn't be really creepy and weird, holding a sign that says "Here to listen." And the result was pretty staggering. I mean, tell me about that. But that that. Boy, there was something about that. First of all, the bravery associated with doing that. That's a weird thing to do. And yet some remarkable things happen. Yeah, it's this group called Urban Confessional. Um, and Urban Confessional was founded by a guy named Ben Mathis. And Ben is an actor and acting coach. And he went through a divorce and he had a you know really rough time. He was feeling really down. And one day, for reasons that he couldn't quite understand, he saw a homeless man and just started talking to him. And they had, you know, a nice little talk and, you know, had a little connection there. And he learned a little bit about the guy and he took, you know, took his own focus off himself, which always feels good when you're feeling bad about yourself. But he came away and he was just like, I just felt good. You know, that guy felt listened to. And, you know, Ben gave him a little bit of money, of course. Um, That guy felt better, but Ben felt better, too. And he was like, I wonder what this is at play here. So he started this organization called Urban Confessional, which I think is in 50 countries or something now. It's pretty big. Um, and what these people do is they make a, like a homemade cardboard sign. So you get this crude looking sign with your crudely scrawled free listing on it. And you just stand at a street corner with a partner. And then you just wait for people to come over. And you, it's, it's an interesting exercise because you just need to be listening. Like you need to make people feel comfortable that this isn't like a social media stunt. You're not recruiting them for some cult or something. But people come over and they're like, what is this? And we're like, we're just here to listen. You know, we're here to listen to you. And they'll be like, what am I supposed to say? And we'll just be like, well, have you lived here for a while? Like, what was your day like? You just ask like very open questions and then pay attention um, and show interest and show curiosity. And people will just tell you their life stories. Like there's this real sense um, that they don't have anyone to talk to, you know. And a lot of polling shows that too, that a lot of people feel alone rates of loneliness are through the roof. That's probably tied to rising rates of mental illness because we do need to be social. We do need connection to stay healthy. But I remember when I read about it, I read about it somewhere when I was doing the research and I was like, this sounds like the worst thing. I've, like, I can't imagine anything more com- uncomfortable with this, you know, and I'm a fairly easily embarrassed person, but I was like, but I can't not do it. This guy seems interesting. So I took, <laughs> I took the train from Chicago to Los Angeles which is a 44-hour train trip, which is also really fun, and that's in the book, just to see how people are on a 44-hour train trip. Uh, they were pretty great. But uh, it got out there to East L.A. with Ben, and like we got breakfast and then stood out in the street, and like it was incredible how little you had to do um, to get people to come over. And it, you know, it sounds unseemly almost, but just to like pour their hearts out to you. Um, and these were not like did not seem to be deeply neurotic or troubled people or anything like that. I mean, it was definitely a mix of people, a mix of classes, a mix of races. But there was just this overwhelming sense that they really wanted to tell someone about this, but they didn't have anyone to tell it to. And I, you know, as I talk to a lot of psychologists and professors, 
about this, they almost every single one of them said that their students feel that way too, that they don't have anyone to talk to, that no one could possibly understand them, that they can't understand other people. Um, and when they do this, often in the form of like doing, you know, participating in an in a experiment where they're sent out to talk to strangers, um, they find that, you know, you get past the awkwardness of it, it, it tends to go pretty naturally and it tends to go pretty well and it tends to feel pretty good, which it should because this is our nature, right? This isn't like an aberration. Like this is what we do. This is sort of the secret of our success in many ways. But yeah, I, I remember coming out, coming away from that experience completely blown away by it, that it really did feel good, you know? And, and one really interesting takeaway from it was Ben's approach. It was like, he calls it imbalanced listening which is actually a really good thing that everybody should try to do at like a party or wherever you are, which is talk about the other person 70% of the time, like make sure that they're talking 70% of the time. So you resist the temptation to like hunt for the thing that you're interested in and then make it all about your interests. You just have to like, they have the microphone and you can, you can chime in to show that you understand that you've had a similar experience just to show that like you're here with them. You understand what this is you're a person they can they can talk to about it but just don't like bigfoot the conversation right so for my like for my you talk about tribes like for my tribe like my for my tribe conversation is like a competitive sport right so there's not a this is just like you just get massacred it's like a rock fight you know growing up like everybody was such a smart ass but just like hang like de developing the discipline to hang back and just let someone talk and be interested and just ask like non-steering sort of questions, just like questions like, why, why do you think that happened? Or why do you feel that way? Can really open you up to some extraordinary interactions. And that was my experience like on a street corner for four hours in East LA a couple of years ago. Tell me what happened on the train. I remember you, there were two things that jumped out at me. One was coming out of your cabin or room or whatever, and immediately having people saying, come over and join us and walking into the dining table and it being almost a competitive event as to which table are you going to end up sitting at based on the number of people going, come on over and sit down. Yeah. Yeah. No, it reminded me in a way of um, research on, I read a bunch of papers on like um, Zulu greeting rituals. And there is, you know, again, we think that we tend to think that traditional societies would be very xenophobic, that they would just be anti-strangers, but it was actually a mark of prestige to attract strangers. And it's like an economic benefit, right? So if you get more people in the tribe, as long as there's enough food, then you can have more output, you can have more mates, you can have more friends, you can have more power. Um, so in many cultures, they would like compete to welcome the stranger. Um, but they would have to do things to like make sure the person's safe, they're not a threat. You know, there would always be like a multi-step process through which like the person was made clean so they could be granted entry into the tribe, that sort of thing. But I thought about that when I got on the train because I was traveling alone. You'd get on the dining car and you would just be waved over. Like people would wave you over, you know, because these are trained people and they love this stuff. They live for this stuff. They could fly, you know, you fly to Chicago to LA in like two hours or something. It doesn't have to take 44 hours. But they just love that. They love the kind of like the party on wheels aspect of it. They love mingling with everybody else, the randomness of it. And it's like a truly random collection of people. And you got to know everyone by sight. And it was just like a little resort. I mean, it was a little Amtrak resort. So it's like the worst resort in the world. But, um, but it was just really cool. Like you, you make friends when you're on that train. I still talk to some of the people I met there. And you sat down and you'd, you'd be with someone from New Jersey and someone from Kentucky and someone from Spain. Like it would just be a great mix and the conversations are great because these people are good at this because they always travel like this. They love the kind of rolling conversational aspect of it. 
um, it was great. It was really, really fun. I really recommend it. I didn't sleep for two days because like those things are so uncomfortable. <laughs> like Amtrak is such, it's really, uh, it's not a credit to our nation, but, uh, but the people were great. It was a blast. And I, I was just interested like how people, how socializing would work in like a closed space like that. You're in a metal tube together. No one knows each other. Like, how does it work? What are the norms like? And, uh, and people are completely, completely open because a lot of the anxiety people feel about talking to strangers has to do with not knowing if you have anything in common. And here, what you have in common is like, where are you going? And that starts every conversation. And then, you know, that naturally leads to where are you from? And it naturally leads to travel stories and philosophical musings and everything. It was, it was really great. I loved it. So the, the subtitle of the book is fascinating to me. This, this idea that we live in a suspicious world. Why is that? What is it that makes us feel unsafe around strangers? Because it's clearly a misplaced. I mean, obviously there are there are wackadoodles out there, but but the vast majority of people are not. And the vast majority of people are just people. They want to do what everybody else wants to do. Why has that happened? Yeah, I, I went through a lot of crime data from the last you know twenty to fifty years on what percentage of major crimes are caused by strangers. Because I was raised in the U.S. in the eighties. And it was like the stranger danger propaganda was relentless. And a lot of it came from the Centers for Missing and Abducted Children, which is a great organization, but like they kind of got that one going. And then everyone ran with it. And still to this day, you see stranger danger. Like the fact that it rhymed made it true for people in spite of data that suggests that like, if you want the real, like, you know, the real threat is coming from, it's coming from your family. <laughs> like a lot of the, most of the violence, most of the major crimes are like family and friends neighbors, right? People you'd know, which makes a lot more sense because they would have reason to harbor grudges that go deep enough that they turn to violence or they're just familiar with you. The, the percentage of major crimes caused by strangers is, is actually quite low compared to that. But there's something about our wiring that makes us wary of people we don't know, right? And this, this is a useful evolutionary um, development that we just shouldn't, you know, we can't be like the dodo where we just wander up to everybody and hug them. Like there are threats out there. There are dangers out there. You do have to be wary. You do have to be street smart. But for like 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, everyone has had it drummed into their head that everyone in the world they don't know poses some sort of moral threat to them. And there's a little bit of political science research on this, not a lot, that suggests that that effort has eroded um, social trust, right? So social trust makes it seem reasonable and safe for you to let your kid walk down the street alone, right? It's basically trust in strangers. It's trust in the people around you. So I think that poisoned the well quite a bit. And even, you know, the heads of the Centers for Missing and Exploited Children who I spoke to, they officially announced that they weren't using stranger danger anymore um, because it wasn't helping. It was making people paranoid and it, it completely missed the reality of a situation where a kid's in trouble where they are going to have to go to a stranger. Right, you have to go to a cop. You're going to have to go find a mother. Like you're going to have to find someone to help you out if you get lost. Whereas if you say all strangers are a threat, it becomes really counterintuitive. So you can't, you know, it's not helpful to poison children against everyone around them. It makes everybody neurotic and it, it destroys social trust. So I think that was part of it. I think a lot of the media messaging now, you know, is is remarkably pessimistic about people who aren't in our group. I think, you know, to your point, it is it is very tribal. Um, I would say, you know, you be careful with the word tribal, just because tribes, many tribes, do made it a practice of like interacting and trading with other tribes. They just had like ways to do it safely. Very few tribes are just like outwardly violent. You know, there are some that have been. Um, research that are just like on an island and they've had very bad experience with other people. So they are like violent on their face, of course. But yeah, so I, I think a lot of that 
you know, polarization, political messaging, um, that can really poison people's perception of the people around them. You know, I always think of like, and I say this as a member of the media, right? Like I was in journalism for 20 years. If you got all your data about people from the news and from social media, you would have a remarkably negative view of people, right? Because that's the incentive structure of both of those things. And so increasingly, as we withdraw from the public, as we withdraw from the physical world and move into a digital one, we're not getting good data anymore about the people we share a block with and a city with and a country with. Um, we're getting poisons. We're getting corrupted data. And so what I found, I didn't put this in the book because I, I don't think I realized it until later, was that making a practice of talking to people you don't know um, in whatever context. You know, it can be in a conversation group. It can be a very structured sort of thing. It doesn't have to be out in the street. If you're not comfortable with that sort of thing, there are plenty of opportunities. Um, is that it gives you better data, right? It allows you to humanize the people around you. It allows you to, it relieves you of the luxury of believing that people around you are simple, right? And the research has shown this too, where we do have like a bias against strangers where we just don't think they're as like complex and special as we are, right? Because we don't get access to their inner thoughts. But when you do make a practice of talking to people, especially people from different groups, but really anybody, um, and it goes well, you generalize from that. Right. In the same way you would generalize if you got mugged by a member of a certain group, you would be like those people. Like if I get mugged by a Greek, you'd be like, oh, the Greeks, those are all muggers. Like that's a human human tendency too to generalize off of negative experience. Um, but we can do that with positive experience too. And so I found that even, you know, I'm not, I'm a fairly skeptical at times cynical person just by, this is like what I, I have to be for my profession a lot of the times, that when I felt really bad about people, I would go out and just like chat with somebody and just feel like reassured, you know, like I don't have to worry about that person. And if I don't have to worry about that person, there's probably a bunch of people like them too that I don't have to worry about. And like, I feel a little bit better. But if you're not doing that and all your messaging is coming through media, um, then it's just going to keep you, uh, keep you out of the world, right? It's going to keep you from making friends, making contacts. It's going to keep you from interacting. You're just going to go into a protective crouch and then all the messaging is going to keep telling you that you should stay in that crouch, right? Like everything you see ends up just validating this poisonous idea you have about people around you. Um, and that's when you get into serious loneliness issues and mental health issues and things like that that arise from having insufficient social contact with other people. At the risk of sounding like a troglodyte, I tend to rail against social media quite a bit because I, I think it's actually anti-social media. And, you know, under the guise of connecting us to, to everybody, it's actually isolating us into one-person silos, uh, doing exactly what you're talking about in many cases. And I don't think people realize it, especially young people. And I think that's, you know, that's really scary, uh, that, that particular aspect of, of what it's doing to people in terms of self-image, body image, all that stuff that we all hear about. I also talk a lot about um, the corrosive power of labels. Because it's so easy, because we have such a wonderful language to work with, it's so easy to attach, you know, liberal conservative, Democrat, Republican, and then everybody falls into that category. And it's, it's such an oversimplification of reality, to your point. My wife and I just got back from a, a road trip down to South Carolina. I had to go give a keynote to one of my clients. And it's South Carolina, okay? They're burning books down there, okay? And yet, I met a whole bunch of people that are truly, deeply, richly conservative. And I mean, they're, you know, these are people that make Attila the Hun look like, you know, look like Bernie Sanders, they couldn't be nicer. I mean, I don't agree with them on many things, but I took the time to talk to them to try to understand where they were coming from. And I get it. I don't like it, but I get it. And they were fine. They're, I mean, many of them were people I'd enjoy having dinner with. They're just nice people. 
And so, you know, it, it just, it just kind of peels the cover back and, and shows us just how complicated we really are. And that's a good thing. There's a richness there that we need to focus on, not the label. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the, the really noxious effects of an age of polarization is that the more polarized a society becomes, the less human the opposition appears to everybody. So like your group feels embattled, you feel that you're being mistreated. Um, the tendency is to say that that like we are full and rich people, but they're just following orders. They're basically like a, a group of one-lunged organisms over there. They're not really people. We understand their motivations. We know what they're up to. Like they're very easily dismissed, right? But if you go out there and you actually talk to people, yeah, you might hate their political views, but you will find if you go into it in a certain spirit that you can talk to people and that they will surprise you. Okay, so what's next for Joe? I wrote this book called The Lemon, which is under the name S.E. Boyd. I wrote it with two friends, Kevin Alexander and Alessandra Lusardi. Um, and we sold it, I guess it came out last year. Um, and we sold it to Hollywood with us producing it and writing it. So we were developing the show when the strike hit. So we've been on strike since because of that. But the strike hopefully will end relatively soon and we can get back to it. But yeah, we're doing the TV ad adaptation of The Lemon. That's the next thing. To learn more about Joe Cohane, visit joecohane.net. That's J-O-E-K-E-O-H-A-N-E.net. The book is The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World. Trust me, read this book. And his other title, The Lemon, is equally great. Lee Child said it best in his review, Laugh Out Loud Hysterical. I agree. Now, before I sign off, I have to tell you a quick story. Shortly after I read the book, The Power of Strangers, I was having coffee with a friend of mine here in town. And it was a warm summer morning. We were sitting outside and I was telling him about the book and what an impact it had had on me. He's a bit of a curmudgeon and he was sort of denying what I said, you know, and, and I said, well, I'm, I'm just telling you, it, it had a huge impact on me. You really need to read it. Well, we ran out of coffee and decided to go inside to get a refill. So we stood up, took our cups with us, went to the door. There was a guy coming out and, you know, he had one of those four cup holders in one hand and he had another cup of coffee in the other hand and a bag of pastries. And so we went through that dance on, you know, who's going to hold the door for who kind of thing. And so I ended up opening the door and as the guy came out, I noticed that he had a New Orleans Saints t-shirt on. Now, full disclosure, I don't know the first thing about the New Orleans Saints. I'm pretty sure that they are a football team and I'd be willing to guess that they're from somewhere in Louisiana. That's about the extent of my knowledge. But I decided to do two things. One, I wanted to show my friend that this stuff was real. And number two, I wanted to actually use the tool. So I pointed at the guy's shirt and I went, dude. And he stopped and he said, oh, you like the saints? And I said, there are no words. Because there weren't. Well, anyway, he puts his stuff down. And he says, did you hear what so-and-so did? And, and he named some guy that I later found out was a coach. I said, no, what did he do? He said he fired his entire coaching staff. I said, why? He said, because while everybody knows football is, you know, it's a masculine sport, he thinks it's too masculine. He thinks it needs a, a woman's sort of influence. So he hired all women to replace the people that he got rid of. So all of his coaches, his physical therapists, his strategists, the physiologists, they're all women. I said, you're kidding me. 
Well, the whole time we're talking, this guy's smile is getting bigger and bigger, and my friend is watching this very closely. And the guy keeps talking and keeps telling me more, and he's getting closer to me, and we're having this great conversation, and suddenly my friend leans in and he says, what did I tell you about talking to strangers? <laughs> and the guy I was talking to says, with again a huge smile on his face, well, I guess we're not strangers, are we? And he introduced himself. And then ultimately he walked away. And when he walked away, my friend turned to me, his eyes huge, and he said, you weren't kidding. It works. I said, I know. I know. It works. It's like a superpower. So there's my story, folks. The Power of Strangers. Go get it and read it. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.